Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear a public seminar by Jonah Bush entitled Why Forests, Why Now? The Science, Economics and Politics of Tropical Forests and Climate Change. The seminar focuses on Bush's book, where he brings together the latest research on the importance of tropical forests in fighting climate change. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We'll begin, uh, as we always do, by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and by paying our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. <coughs> uh, today we're delighted to have Jonah Bush uh, speaking. Jonah is a senior fellow at the Centre for Global Development, and his uh, topic for today is Why Forests, Why Now? The Science, Economics and Politics of Tropical Forests and Climate Change. And that is the name of the book that he has just uh, co-authored with Francis Seymour. Some of you will remember Francis uh, Seymour came and spoke at the ANU a couple of years ago. Another connection is Robin Davies, uh, one of our colleagues, uh, contributed a background paper uh, to this book. And um, I'll also just mention Jonah, as well as being expert on um, deforestation, climate change, uh, does a lot of work on Indonesia. He's currently doing the latest Indonesia survey for the Indonesia Bulletin, and that's uh, you know, one reason that brings him to Canberra and that, uh, that gives a connection with the Indonesia project. Um, I'll also mention Joan is currently based, although he's a senior fellow at the Centre for Global Development, he's actually based in uh, China, where he's a visiting scholar in the College of the Environmental and Resource Sciences at Zhejiang University in Hangzhou. Uh, so, Joan, we're delighted to have you. Thanks very much. Uh, you've got an hour for your presentation, and that leaves half an hour for questions and discussions. So please welcome Jonah Bush. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Thank you also to the Arndt Center, to the Development Policy Center and the Indonesian Project. Um, so it's, it's nice to be uh, here at ANU because I was almost a student at ANU um, about 20 years ago when I was an undergraduate in the United States, I uh, went to the, the study abroad program and I said, I would like to study abroad in Australia. And they said, okay, uh, we've got a few options. There's, there's Adelaide, there's Wollongong, there's ANU. Um, I looked at the options and I said, okay, I'm gonna go to Wollongong. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna be surfing, I'm gonna be snorkeling, I'm gonna be climbing the mountain. They said, all right, well that's, you know, we respect your opinion, but we've got something even better for you. Let me tell you more about ANU. Um, but I, I, you know, I listened, but I didn't end up taking the bait. I did go to Wollongong. Uh, and so maybe, I don't know if I made the right decision or the wrong decision. Maybe we'll, we'll find out uh, after this talk. So almost, almost came here to ANU. I, I, um, this talk is Why Forest, Why Now? This is about a book uh, that I uh, wrote with Francis Seymour. Many of you may know Francis, who's the former director general of the Center for International Forestry Research in Bogor, Indonesia, um, and is currently my colleague at Center for Global Development. Uh, this book is about the other cause of climate change. So I think everybody knows about how burning fossil fuels cause climate change, how it's necessary to reduce those emissions if we want to have uh, a cool, stable climate. Uh, but in addition to fossil fuels, there's other causes, the biggest of which is uh, burning tropical forests, and that's what this book is all about today. Um, 
So I work at the Center for Global Development. The Center for Global Development is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're about 70 or so, mostly development economists. Our, uh, our niche, our mission is on what rich countries of the world can be doing better uh, to improve the lives of poor people in developing countries. So it's, it's uh, not about India should do this, Indonesia should do that. We're about the US should do this, Australia should do that. Um, and we got involved in climate change before I even arrived uh, based on charts like this. So this, this is saying very simply that uh, climate change has the, the, the worst effects, the most uh, damages to people who are living in, in, in poor countries. This is divided here very simplistically between blue developed countries, orange developing countries, the same way the, the UN Climate Convention divides them up. Uh, and you know, more than three quarters of the costs are to people living in developing countries, more than their share of population or GDP. Uh, whereas historically, more than three quarters of the emissions have come from uh, the rich countries. And of course, that's changing on a year-to-year -year basis now. Uh, more than two-thirds of the countries, where two-thirds of the emissions are coming from China and India and others. And of course, the distinctions are very rapidly blurring between what, we, what would be a blue and an orange country. Mm -hmm. But uh, my boss looked at charts like this and said, okay, this is right in something we need to be working on. If this is something where rich countries need to do a better job to improve the lives of people in poor countries. Um, so then uh, my boss and others looked at charts like this. And they said, we're a small research center. We're, we're only a few people. We can't you know, take on all of climate change. It's such a big topic. Let's pick a subtopic where we can really uh, you know, develop some expertise and have something to say. Uh, so. The orange here are emissions from uh, deforestation. It's, it's roughly 10% of global emissions. That, that number has gone down from a few decades ago, mostly because, not because it's gotten, the emissions from deforestation have gotten smaller, but because emissions from other sources have gotten larger. CO2 emissions from fossil fuels have grown larger. And of that 11%, about 8% uh, is emissions from tropical deforestation, another 3% from uh, other parts of the world. So um, Nancy Birdsall, my former boss, hired Francis Seymour, my co-author, uh, who's a world-renowned expert on tropical forests. Francis hired me, and we uh, wrote a book together, Why Forests, Why Now? So, and, and this, book is available on Amazon.com or from Brookings Institution Press. So you can get it online for $25. You can get the e-reader for $10. So pretty uh, reasonable. So what were our goals with the book? Um, we decided to write a book to do, to do three things. We wanted to uh, synthesize authoritatively all of the relevant information that's out there on tropical deforestation and climate change. It's currently spread across many disciplinary journals. As our title alludes to, there's science, economics, and politics. Uh, not many people are going to be reading all of those different journals, so we wanted to put it all in one place. Um, secondly, we wanted to make the findings accessible to non-specialists. So we didn't want you to have to be 
an expert in, in satellite monitoring to understand what was going on with satellite monitoring. Didn't want you to have to be an expert in political science to understand what's going on in the politics in Brazil. Uh, so we tried to put everything in more or less plain language. We tried to use a lot of infographics. We tried to use a lot of stories before getting into the facts and figures. And finally, we wanted to make a, a persuasive case about what rich countries should be doing about tropical deforestation. So it wasn't enough for us to put forward the facts and figures and, and let them speak for themselves. Uh, having looked at those, we think there's a very strong case that rich countries should be providing more uh, attention and more funding for tropical forest conservation. So th that's what we try to do in the book, three, three goals. Um, this, this was a big project. Um, what, what we did to come to a book was that my, my co-author and I had six research assistants over the course of more than two years. We commissioned more than 20 background papers from authors, including Robin Davies, who, who wrote an excellent uh, piece about Australia's experience with cooperation uh, on forest conservation in Indonesia. Um, and those would, have even, those would have been a great edited volume if we just stapled them together. But we decided to uh, take all the, you know, take from the content of those papers and write it all together into one storyline in our own voice from word one to word n uh, so that it all reads as one, as one story. Um, and the book finally uh, came out in December of 2016, and so now we're uh, presenting it. And the, the book in three key messages is, is this. Um, so first, tropical forests are undervalued as a contributor to climate stability and sustainable development. So it's, it's not just, it's not only the tropical forests are valuable to the climate and valuable uh, for meeting sustainable development goals, it's that they're, they are, uh, their, their perceived value is less than their actual value because of some uh, important reasons that I'll show. Uh, second, the science, the economics, and politics are now aligned to support action on tropical forests in a way that wasn't the case 10 years ago or even five years ago. So there have been some very important recent developments that mean that it's now very realistic to talk about conserving tropical forests uh, on a very large scale. And finally, we put forward uh, results-based payments for reducing emissions from deforestation as having great potential for success. Um, rich countries paying tropical countries for keeping their forests standing based on their, their climate services that they provide. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about more of these in depth. The remainder of my talk is going to be giving a flyover look at the 13 chapters of the book spanning the science, the economics, uh, less so today probably on the, the politics uh, and some on, on, on the finance. Um, so there's, there's a lot more in the book than I'll be able to cover in the talk, including a lot more nuance on many of these issues. So um, I'll keep that, keep that in mind. All right. So tropical deforestation. We, we found that when we're talking about tropical deforestation in an audience in the United States, people have a, have a different picture in mind to start out with than, than what we're talking about. So um, people in 
the United States, many we've found, think about what's happening, you know, current contemporary deforestation in the United States, which is almost entirely uh, logging companies in cycles of harvesting trees, often second growth, often that they've planting, and then replanting trees again in more or less a balanced cycle. Uh, but what's happening in most of the tropics is more like what happened in the United States uh, in the 18th century, the 19th century, most of the 20th century, which is waves of expansion of agricultural settlement coming in and entirely displacing forests, clearing forests, replacing them with fields with really no intention of ever letting trees regrow there. Um, and so that's what's happening mostly in the tropics. This on the top left is from Brazil, where primary forest is being replaced by a soy uh, field. There's also a lot of cattle uh, clearing for cattle pastures. The top right is from Indonesia, where primary forest is being replaced by oil palm plantation. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, fast-growing pulp and trees grown for pulp and paper production. And the bottom is Madagascar. Uh, this is uh, small-scale farming replacing uh, forest. So um, whenever this happens, it is a source of carbon dioxide emissions to the atmosphere. A typical tropical forest uh, may have about uh, 100 tons of carbon or 120 tons of carbon or even more per hectare. When that's burned, all the carbon that's stored in the trunks, uh, in, the, in the, the branches, the roots of the trees, uh, goes up to the atmosphere as, as, as smoke and often a lot from the soil as well. Um, so much, in fact, that one, one square mile of tropical forest, if you were to take all the carbon in that square mile of trees and you burn it, um, and it all goes to the atmosphere, that's the same amount of emissions as taking your car uh, and driving it to the sun and back to your driveway, back to the sun, back to your driveway. So it's really just a phenomenal amount of carbon in tropical forests that's emitted to the atmosphere. And the amount of tropical forests that are being cleared and burned every year is about the size of Austria. So when you multiply very large stores of carbon by very large areas, it's a globally significant amount of carbon uh, being released to the atmosphere here. Um, now, of course, trees can and do grow back if they're allowed to. So over many decades, if you regrow forests, you'll take carbon out of the atmosphere, put it back into the land. Um, but mostly, as I mentioned, what's happening is clearing for agriculture or pasture, which are their own source of emissions. Um, so how much, how many emissions is this? We saw before it's about 11% of total, about 8% of that is tropical. Uh, sorry, so, so this is, yeah, just in places where there's peat soil, like in Indonesia, uh, that's burning, you get even larger amounts of, uh, of emissions. Um, and and the, the main countries that I'm talking about here are really... Uh, Indonesia, Brazil, these other seven together account for uh, more than three quarters of emissions. Um, and it's about four to five billion tons of greenhouse gases 
a year out of a total uh, from all sources of about 40 to 50 billion tons. Uh, so how much is that relative to other countries? If tropical deforestation was its own country, it would be the third largest source of emissions. So smaller than China, smaller than the United States, but larger than the European Union. So just as it's basically a non-starter to consider trying to solve climate change without uh, actions on the part of the European Union, it's, it's pretty much impossible to think that we could ever get to a, a stable climate without actions to address tropical deforestation as well. Um, and this already, this 11% this or this 8%, this is um, an underestimate of the contribution, the potential contribution of forests to the solution to climate change. So I, I mentioned that forests are uh, undervalued for their contributions. This is, this is one of the ways why. So if you're familiar with the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change Reports, the, the most recent, the fifth assessment report that we pulled the numbers from earlier, the 11% uh, the of total emissions coming from uh, forests, from deforestation, that, that, that number is what's presented in the, the synthesis, the, the summary for policymakers. Uh, it's the net number. Um, what, if, what you have to dig into the details, you have to look uh, in chapter 11 and uh, you know, page 450, something like that, and then they, they show you the gross numbers of emissions and the removals, uh, which, is, which is more useful if you're thinking about addressing climate change because these are, these are two different things you can be doing to solve, to address climate change. You can be reducing all of the, the gross emissions. Uh, at the same time, you can be maintaining the the removals or even enhancing those removals. And they're, they're happening in different places. So as I, as I showed, uh, deforestation, those gross emissions are largely from Brazil, from Indonesia, from some other countries. Removals are uh, countries growing back their forests in, in China and in India um, and other places. So we can be doing both. And if you were to stop all uh, gross emissions from tropical deforestation, you know, I'm not saying it's easy uh, by any means, but if biophysically you were to do that, you would get more than 8%, you'd get closer to 16 to 19%, according to the numbers in the IPCC. Um, and so tropical forest emissions, you can actually make, you can make them negative. You could turn a, a source of emissions into a sink. That's not the case for emissions from, uh, from energy, from transportation, uh, where there's sort of a floor at zero. You, can't, you, you can get emissions down to zero. Not, that's not easy either, but you can't make them negative. For forests, you can make them negative. Um, so the 8% is, is an underestimate. Um, now, that's, that's climate, but there's a lot of co-benefits that come with conserving forests uh, other than just carbon. Um, so in forest countries, forests are providing a lot of services that are, uh, 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 the, the, if you look at the sustainable development goals, many other sustainable development goals have contributions from forests. Uh, better health, cleaner water, um, more energy, um, safer living conditions, and, and several others. So to give, to give some examples, 
Um, forests have for, forests clean water, so water comes as rain, uh, and forests filter out pollution, and they, they keep sediment, uh, they keep soil intact compared to if, if the forest is cleared and the, the soil erodes and runs off into the water source. Um, and if you have a hydroelectric dam below that forest, the water is going to be cleaner coming into the reservoir than it would be uh, if, if, the, if the forest were cleared. And in places like Latin America, hydroelectric power is two-thirds of all energy, so it's important. Uh, because the water comes in cleaner, uh, it produces more electricity. You know, roughly from, from the studies, across several studies, roughly about maybe 5% more electricity with the cleaner water. You also don't have to replace the turbine blades as often. You don't have to dredge the reservoir as often. So forests and a watershed help produce more electricity. Um, forest, the deforestation contributes to adverse health outcomes. Uh, for example, forest fires in Indonesia cause you know, what's, what's called haze. Uh, it spreads throughout the entire region, mostly in Indonesia, but also the neighbors, causing ill health effects. So forests, more forests, better health, uh, to give a few examples. Now, these uh, services of forests mostly do not show up in typical uh, accounting statistics. They don't show up in GDP. They don't show up in most uh, poverty surveys, household poverty surveys. Uh, but they are economically valuable. And so that's yet another way where we sort of say forests are undervalued relative to their true, um, their true value. If you're, if you're making public policy decisions to try to increase GDP or to try to reduce poverty and you don't have forest contributions to GDP or poverty in your scorecard, um, <coughs> you'll, you'll be perhaps blind to policies that would help, you know, forest protection policies that could uh, increase growth or, or reduce poverty. Um, okay, so here, here's an animation. <coughs> so this, um, this is Sumatra in, in Indonesia, and I'll just let it cycle, cycle through in the background. Um, Green is forest, red is deforestation. Um, and this is one of the, the areas of the highest deforestation in the world. So in most of the tropics, there wouldn't be as much red as this. But it's a nice example of um, what satellite technology and science to process satellite technology now lets us see about tropical forests. So in 2013, there was, there was a paper uh, published in Science by scientists at the University of Maryland, working together with, with Google and other institutions, using data collected by satellites from uh, NASA, the US Space Agency. And what they were able to do is uh, look at the entire world in areas uh, 30 meters by 30 meters, so really not all that much larger than this room, uh, and identify what's a forest and what's deforestation. Uh, the entire world using the same methods across space, the same methods every year. Um, There's nothing like that available previously on such a scale. Maybe a few places within a few countries would have had that. Um, and they were able to publish this as a map um, 
in, in science. And so this, this shows where deforestation is happening across the world. Uh, green is forest. Red, like in South America, uh, along the Amazon and, and in Africa, is deforestation. Um, purple, like in Indonesia, are pla places where trees uh, are being cleared, forests are being cleared, and trees are growing back. In this case, a lot of uh, oil palm plantations or uh, fast-growing <coughs> timber plantations. Uh, and you see also in the United States and across Europe a lot of purple as well. Uh, so this, this is, was just a, a revolution in data availability. Um, but you already can see that there's things that it can't, it can't do. This particular data set was unable to distinguish between uh, natural forest uh, and um, you know, palm oil plantations. Those both show up in satellite spectral signals as, as trees. Um, but tropical uh, forest monitoring is advancing along many aspects, including being able to distinguish uh, natural forests from palm oil plantations. So in the last five or six years, breakthroughs in being able to map uh, from satellites how much carbon is stored in forests, uh, how that carbon is changing over time, and this is kind of an interesting one. So tell, telling the difference between what's a forest and what's a plantation, uh, I learned in this book, that's actually something people can do much more easily than computers can. Um, so you and I could look at this, uh, it may not be, I'm not sure how well it's in focus, but we can look at this and we can tell, okay, this is a natural forest, this is a, a palm oil plantation, because here there's you know, even straight, rows and all the trees are the same height. Here it's you know, much more modeled. So we can look at that instantaneously and tell. Um, computers have a hard time with it. It's like compared to like a CAPTCHA where the website wants to tell if you're a human being or a, a robot, it makes you, you know, read the, the numbers and the letters and type them in and it's very easy, but for whatever reason computers can't visualize and do that. This is sort of the same thing here. So it's actually people plus computers say, this is a forest, this is a palm oil plantation. Anyway, there's a lot of really amazing advances happening in uh, the science to be able to tell what's a forest, to monitor forests. And of course, if you can monitor it, you know, if you can't monitor it, you can't manage it. So, it, so this makes it much easier. It opens the door to many types of forests uh, protection policies that wouldn't have been thinkable five years ago. Um, including also there's other satellites that give a detection every two weeks of where deforestation is happening. So this is something, for example, that the environmental police in Brazil were able to, to use to go out and enforce uh, forest laws that hadn't been enforced or probably even enforceable before this satellite was available. I'll talk more about Brazil in a minute. Uh, and the book also um, gives a sense of what forest technologies are coming down the pike. Um, so in, in 2018, the International Space, State, Space Station will put uh, lasers, LIDAR, on the space station that will be able to tell how much carbon is stored uh, in all the forests across the tropics uh, with very high accuracy. So really, really neat stuff coming. Um, so that's, yeah, oh, sure. 
So that's the science. Um, moving on to the economics that we talk about in this book. And a lot of what we do in the book is we synthesize uh, the work of others and try, try to make it uh, understandable. But we also do several uh, studies of our own, original studies of our own. This is one of them. Um, so a researcher, a research assistant and I tried to figure out uh, how much carbon would be lost from deforestation under business as usual in the next 35 years, no new policies, and how much would it cost to avoid those emissions, to have less deforestation. So we took those new maps that I was showing of you know, 30 meter resolution maps of the, the tropics where deforestation had happened uh, from 2000 to 2012, and we matched up those maps with uh, factors that we thought would influence whether there was more or less deforestation. So we looked uh, using maps at whether different uh, pieces of land were more remote or closer to cities, whether they had steeper slopes or whether they were flatter, uh, whether they were good for growing crops or whether you couldn't grow anything there, and whether they were uh, protected by law or whether they were, they, they were, they were not. Um, and as uh, you know, we expected and as you would expect, there's a pretty strong relationship with all these things. There's very low rates of deforestation in the, you know, the distant, protected, uh, inaccessible areas where you can't grow anything. If land is you know, closer to people and it's, it's flat and you can grow crops there, there's more deforestation. So we, we, we took all that information um, statistically, we figured out the relationship using uh, pretty standard economic uh, multivariate regression techniques, and then we rolled it forward uh, for the next 35 years and said, if, this, if these type of uh, relationships continue, how much deforestation will happen and where will it happen? Um, and the bad news is we projected that by 2050, the world would lose an additional area of tropical forest the size of India. Uh, that's about a seventh of the current area of tropical forest in the year 2000. Uh, and the, you know, the other piece of bad news is that by burning all those forests, the, putting the carbon from the land there to the atmosphere, this burns through on its own about a sixth of uh, what many people call the, the planetary carbon budget. So how much carbon can people burn and emit and we're still able to keep below a two degree uh, increase in global temperature. So this is, letting this happen un, unhindered would be one sixth of uh, the remaining burnable carbon. So that, that's the bad news. Um, the good news is that it's a relatively uh, low-cost, cost-effective uh, way to reduce emissions by protecting forests. So uh, reducing tropical deforestation is a relatively low-cost uh, mitigation option, meaning that compared to uh, other ways you could reduce emissions from other sectors in other countries, uh, it's cheaper. So for those of you who are economics uh, uh, people, you'll recognize a marginal abatement cost curve. For the non-economics people, this is uh, 
sort of a, a window into the, the backward mind of economists because we put the, the we, we flip the x and the y axis from what you're probably used to looking at. So the y axis here is cost, what it would cost to reduce one ton of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the x axis is at that cost, how many emission reductions per year uh, could you obtain? So you start looking up the x and you move across. So at $20 per ton of carbon with tropical deforestation, you could reduce uh, a little less than a, a, a billion tons a year at that, at that cost. Uh, sure, thank you. Um, whereas here we are in Australia and New Zealand, below $20 uh, a ton. It's, I guess it's a little unclear where it shows. I think you're hidden behind this white line. So it's here. You know, this is working at home in Australia. This is what would be available at the same cost across tropical, tropical forests. Uh, another way to look at this is if you're trying to reduce a certain amount of emissions every year, it, you know, say half a billion, it costs this much in the United States, it costs this much, much less in tropical forests, about a quarter or a fifth of the cost for the same amount. Um, so why is, why is that important? Why, why is it important to look for emission reductions that are the lowest cost? Uh, well, okay, before I get to that question, so not, not only are um, emission reductions from deforestation lower cost relative to uh, emission reductions in developed countries, they're also low cost relative to within developing countries. So emissions from deforestation, by this count, about 15% of uh, emissions, but emissions below $20 per ton, almost half in developing countries. And if you take China uh, out of that list, looking at the other developing countries beside China, uh, more than half of the lowest cost emission reductions here. So I think this, this partly explains why even within uh, developing countries, when there comes to be a choice about which sectors are the priorities for emission reductions, they're looking uh, very strongly at tropical, uh, at, at forests, um, more so than energy or other sectors. Uh, and I should say, agriculture is not on here. If you added agriculture to the orange, the orange would be bigger. If you added it to the blue, the blue would look bigger. The orange on this chart and on the last, the last chart, that's from our model, but where we're comparing with uh, the GCAM model, if you know uh, energy models from University of Maryland, and they didn't break out agriculture, so we weren't able to either. Um, okay, so why is, what, what's important, what's about low cost emission reductions? Um, with, with lower cost emission reductions, you can meet climate goals uh, more cheaply, and you can also uh, meet more ambitious climate goals at the same overall cost. So climate change is, is of course, uh, important. I work on it every day, so I, I, I certainly think it's important. Uh, but I work with colleagues who work on, uh, on public health, who work on infrastructure investment, who work on a lot of other things that are also important and budgets in the world are limited uh, for any one thing. So we'd like to be able to deal with the climate problem as uh, cheaply as we can uh, and as much as we can at lowest cost. 
forests help us do that. This is another um, economics chart. So for the non-economists, um, think of uh, you know, the, the x-axis shows how hot the, the earth will get by 2100 relative to pre-industrial times. The y-axis shows uh, the cost in billions of dollars per year of uh, keeping temperature rise to any particular level. And you could think of this as a, as a dartboard. Um, and if this were a dartboard, you can only be in one place on it with your dart. And the place you want to be, bullseye, is, is down here. You want Earth's temperature to go up by as little as possible, and you want it to be as cheap as possible to get there. And to be honest, bullseye is probably even further to the left of this chart, but we're locked into a pretty high amount of emissions and temperature rise already. But we want to be left and we want to be down. Um, but if you throw the dartboard, you can't get anywhere to the lower left of these lines. These lines are, are a limit. Uh, economists call it production possibility frontier, but it's, it's, it's a limit. You can't get any further down than that. Um, if you're only trying to fight climate change by reducing fossil fuels, your limit is this orange line. Um, you, you, and if you want to be, if you want to get more emission reductions, it costs more. Um, and if you want to spend less, then you uh, don't get as many emission reductions. And it's also possible to be above it if you're not doing things as efficiently as you could. But if you bring in this new source of cheap emission reductions, forests, the limit shifts inward, you can get a cooler, your cheaper response to climate change. And the lines look pretty close, but actually at any one uh, you know, horizontal or vertical line, there, it's, a, it's a significant difference. So to get to three degrees Celsius, it's about 30% cheaper if you're using cost-effective emission reductions from forests than if you're not. To get to two degrees C, it's about 28% cheaper. Um, or alternatively, if you're only using emission reductions or you're at, at any particular cost, you can get substantially cooler if you're fighting climate change with the lowest cost emission reductions from both fossil fuels and forests than if you're trying to do so only with uh, fossil fuels. So these are numbers that we model in the book. Um, and it's not only cheaper and cooler, it's also faster, so it can accelerate the global response to climate change at the same cost. The year in which uh, everyone's emissions peak and start declining can be two to five years quicker if we include uh, forests. Those are all, um, up until now, these are, these are sort of global or at least pan-tropical analyses, uh, but we'll start to get into more detail. So this is another original study for the book. This is a meta-analysis of, to answer the question, what causes deforestation, and what stops it. Um, so my research assistant and I looked at uh, 120 studies that all address this question using the same methods. Again, using uh, the spatial economics technique of uh, you know, multivariate regression. So we looked at the entire, you know, we, we, looked, we tried to find all the studies that were out there that had ever been done up till 2013 on this topic. There were, more, there were about 120 of them um, that had as a dependent variable how much deforestation happened in a, in a particular place. 
And as independent variables, um, various measures of you know, slope, elevation, accessibility, uh, population, all sorts of things along usually with some policies, uh, like whether there were protected areas or, or, um, or payments for ecosystem services, say. So we, we looked at all of these studies, compiled them, uh, and we looked at which, which of these uh, independent variables were consistently, again and again, uh, correlated with lower deforestation, which, again and again, were correlated with higher deforestation, and which variables were, were no different than what you might expect to get uh, by flipping a coin uh, over and over again. And the, what's shown here is the ratio of um, how often they were correlated with lower deforestation to how often they were correlated with higher deforestation. Um, and we talk, we talk in the book about uh, how far you can interpret this correlation to be causation. Um, so in some cases, it's pretty straightforward. In some cases, you'd, you'd need further, uh, you'd need more information before you could make that leap. Um, so this is saying law enforcement. Uh, every place there's law enforcement of forest laws, you're 10 times more often you'll see lower deforestation in those places than you would in an equivalent area that didn't have law enforcement. So law enforcement very consistently associated with lower deforestation. Same with uh, protected areas and so national parks and reserves. Uh, payments here for keeping forests standing. Um, and the presence of indigenous peoples. All of these things were correlated with less deforestation. Um, on the other hand, wherever there's roads, there's uh, much more often, far more often to see more deforestation than a, a comparable place without roads. Uh, and higher agricultural prices in times and places with higher agricultural prices, very consistently more uh, deforestation happening. So these suggest to us um, some pretty useful policies that can be put in place to, to stop deforestation. These, this is evidence from 120 studies and I think about 30 or 40 tropical countries uh, weighted more heavily toward Latin America uh, and less heavily toward Africa. Uh, so there, there's some sorts of you know, uh, biases here that we try to test for uh, described in the paper. Um, but the, this is academic. I mean, it's based on the real world, but it's sort of academic. Uh, but what's really interesting one of, I guess, my favorite chapters of the book is where we talk about Brazil, how they reduced deforestation, and how they did it was they used most of those same, um, th th those policies. Mm. So Brazil was, at one time, the, the, the country that had the highest rates of deforestation in the world. Uh, between 1995 and 2004, is about between 15 and 30,000 square kilometers of, of deforestation in the Amazon every year. Um, and then you can see something happened in 2004 and uh, deforestation dropped very, uh, very rapidly. In, in, the, in the span of about six years, deforestation fell 80% from its peak. Um, and then it stayed there for a while, and then now, actually the last two years, it started going back up, um, but it's nowhere near where it was before. So 
the policies that Brazil used from, well, so first of all, why did they do this? There's a fascinating political story on what happened, um, what, what changed in 2004 that Brazil finally decided to put all these policies in place. Um, I'm not going to get into it here. It's in the book. But basically, something happened that was so intolerable that the, the president said, okay, we're, we're done. This ends now. We're going to send in the army. Uh, so, that, so that's what they did. Um, they, they um, after sending in the army, they put in a bunch of, defor uh, of protected areas, recognized a bunch of uh, claims of indigenous people to territories in the Amazon, uh, cut off rural credit, farm credit, to municipalities that had high rates of deforestation. Uh, the, the soy and the beef industries voluntarily decided not to buy any more soy and beef um, from high deforestation areas. Uh, a few other minor things, but basically a whole raft of sort of restrictive, even punitive policies put in place to bring down deforestation. Uh, what's noteworthy here is cattle and soy uh, production kept going up. Uh, you know, you, you can't really notice any change from before to after. Um, there basically, there was so much land available in Brazil to grow these crops outside of forests, there was no need to continue clearing uh, forests to, to keep growing these, uh, these crops. Um, So cattle and soy make up most of the, uh, the deforestation in Brazil. It's an, in fact, it's mostly cattle. It's probably 85 or 90 percent cattle, uh, and a lot of the remainder is soy. Um, but those are, uh, those are there, in fact, there's five commodities, those two, and then palm oil, timber, and pulp and paper that make up a lot of the economic activity that's, that's responsive, that's causing uh, forests to be, to be cleared, cleared for these other uses. Um, and many of those are traded and consumed globally. So what, one of the other uh, original analyses we did is we tried to figure out how many emissions were uh, embedded in products that were produced in tropical countries, consumed uh, in other countries outside of the tropics. Um, so, or, or outside, other countries outside of where they were produced, globally traded. And that ends up being um, a pretty big number. Those, that, those emissions are equivalent to Australia's every year. So the same amount of emissions as Australia produces from all sources is what's happening from emissions from deforestation, let's say, there's a forest in Brazil, it's cleared. There's a, soy past, there's a soy field that goes in there. The soy is put on a boat and shipped to Europe and eaten in Europe. Uh, all, of, all of that, all, all the soy and the beef and the palm oil, et cetera, adds up to the same emissions as Australia. And these are the 25 biggest trade flows in uh, embodied emissions in, of, uh, of deforestation. So, um, Big, you know, the wide arrows is more, more um, emissions like beef from Brazil to Europe or uh, pulp and paper from Indonesia to China. 
and the color of the emissions is um, what the what commodity it is. Um, so that's the that's the economics. Um, just a, a little bit about the, the politics. We have we have in the book three chapters: the politics internationally, um, the politics within tropical forest countries, and uh, also a chapter on the politics within uh, the the rich countries that have put up money for reducing emissions from deforestation. So we compare the the tropical forest politics within Australia, uh, the U.S., Germany, Norway, the U.K., and California. Um, and I think probably many of you are, are, are certainly aware that in 2015, the world uh, came together to negotiate and agree to and celebrate a, a global uh, agreement on climate, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Um, and, and one of the very prominent sections of that agreement has to do with reducing emissions from deforestation, um, Article 5. So what was agreed to in Paris culminated 10 years of negotiation on an acronym called Red Plus. So reducing <coughs> emissions from deforestation and forest degradation plus uh, growing back forests. And it was, the, the, the agreement is, the bargain is, that's contained in this, um, the Paris Agreement is that forest countries would reduce their emissions. Uh, they, they would set a, a baseline, a reference level of what emissions uh, were or what they would be, and they reduce emissions below that. They're monitored, they're reported, they're verified, and then there's a difference here, which is the orange, this is emission reductions, and then the other part of that bargain in the international agreement is that then those uh, emission reductions produced by the country are something they could be paid for uh, by other countries, by, by rich countries. Um, the finance from that could come potentially from public budgets, as it has. It could come potentially from carbon markets, uh, as it ha really hasn't uh, yet to any great degree. Um, so from, from public budgets over, this is just the period 2000, 10 to 2012, you see sort of the biggest countries that put forward finance over that period for all climate. So, and then orange is, um, is forests. So aside from Norway, where forests are most of their climate uh, finance contribution, and almost all other countries, forests are really quite a small uh, fraction, smaller than the 10% contribution from the, the, the gross emissions, smaller than the 24 to 30% potential contribution uh, from the, the gross and the removals. So um, this, this is where the money is, has gone. It's about, this is over a decade. So about almost uh, 10 billion, just a little shy of $10 billion over a decade from tropical, uh, into uh, funds for reducing tropical deforestation, the red plus. So, and, and this, this amount of money, this one billion a year looks pretty set to continue through 2020. Also in Paris, Germany, Norway, the UK announced another $5 billion uh, for that period. So it's about a billion dollars a year 
going for reducing emissions from deforestation. And a little more than half of that is paying for, for inputs, the uh, you know, pre-financing for reducing emissions. So it's you know, setting up monitoring systems or uh, you know, you're developing national plans. Um, a little less than half of that is actually paying for results. So paying on a ton by ton basis for reducing, uh, reducing emissions from deforestation. So that's, that's where the finance currently stands. Um, and it's not enough. It's not enough relative to, uh, relative to the demand. If, if you're judging by how many countries in blue have said that in principle, you know, if, if finance is there and available, uh, they'd, they'd be uh, wanting to reduce emissions and receive results-based finance for it. So there's more than 50 countries that are involved in uh, more than one or more of the, the, the readiness programs, so-called, for, for Red Plus. Um, whereas there's really only six or seven countries that have signed finance agreements uh, to reduce emissions and receive money from it. Um, the biggest of those are Brazil, uh, Indonesia, and, and Guyana. Um, so Brazil, uh, I mentioned before how they reduced um, emissions. You know, they reduced deforestation by about 80%. Uh, I mentioned the policies, restrictive policies that they put in place domestically to do that. Um, about midway through there in 2008, they signed an agreement with Norway uh, that when they reduce emissions, Norway will pay from their public budgets into Brazil's Amazon fund on a ton-by-ton -ton basis. So every ton Brazil reduces, <coughs> Norway would pay $5 per ton into a fund managed by the Brazilian National Development Bank and then put forward toward uh, environment and community development projects in the Amazon. Not necessarily because uh, Brazil thought that those development projects were what's responsible for reducing deforestation, uh, but because it was a way to um, you know, get money out into the region where the, you know, the deforestation is going down and to, to try to you know, in some cases, grow another type of economy, an alternative development path to uh, the expansive beef and soy. So the beef and soy are still a big part of the economy there, but it's, it's instead of being expansive agriculture, it's more toward intensive agriculture, growing on the land that already exists and cleared rather than the, the deforestation. Um, and let's see, I think... So, so that, that's where things stand. Um, you know, wh why, why forests? Well, why forests? Because uh, they're undervalued contributors to climate change uh, mitigation, because they're undervalued contributors to other sustainable development goals. Uh, why now? Now, because with satellite technology, it's actually uh, feasible to monitor deforestation and, and to do many more things about it than were possible. And now there's a Paris agreement that actually all countries have set out how they plan to address the issue. Um, and what's, what's missing is the, uh, is the finance. And it's, you know, it's pretty common to say, uh, well, a lot of things are missing finance. There's a lot of good things you could do in the world uh, if they had more money. But the case 
for rich countries putting forward uh, finance for reducing deforestation is again because it's one of the most cost-effective ways to address the problem. So if rich countries are serious about fighting global warming, they would be looking very uh, you know, early on and on the list, high on the list, at funding reductions in deforestation. Um, so what are some of our recommendations of where we go from here? Um, first, looking, remembering that trade flow map of the commodities going from the tropics to other parts of the world, uh, many uh, of, those, of the companies that trade in those commodities have made commitments to, uh, to source their products from areas that aren't having high deforestation. Uh, that happened in Brazil, and the commitments have been made in many other parts of the world, too. Uh, and they should, they should do it. Uh, so that's, that's up here. They should put those uh, good words into action. Um, second, the public finance that's currently out there for results-based reductions in emissions are, um, it's, 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 uh, it's Germany, it's, it, well, it's Norway, it's Germany, it's the UK. That's a relatively small list, there could be more countries, should be more countries uh, putting in finance this way. Um, public budgets are probably always going to be limited. They're probably always going to be um, pretty capricious, meaning you know the, the, a new thing is in the headlines and, and the donors want to spend on that new thing. Um, there, but market finance could potentially be much longer, uh, much larger and much more durable. Um, the rationale here is if there were international carbon markets, like there are in the European Union, European Union countries trade emissions across themselves. If those develop and they include tropical forest countries, tropical forest countries are able to uh, produce a service that the rest of the world wants, uh, which is keeping carbon in the forest rather than emitting it. And they could sell that service internationally the same way currently you can sell beef, you can sell <coughs> soy, you can sell palm oil. Um, and I've got up here also, because it's happening right now, the Green Climate Fund should move forward on results-based payments for red. Um, so the Green Climate Fund has a board meeting in July, and they're actually considering uh, putting forward the first, what they call, request for proposals related to reducing emissions from deforestation, um, meaning that they would start uh, taking money that's been collected in the Green Climate Fund spending it on a results basis on a country that's, or more, more than one country that's been reducing emissions. So they should do that too. Um, so thank you very much um, and open for questions. So how do you, yeah, do you, should you moderate or? This story from my cop to go get my test right ahead. So I think given uh, my state, I'll just let you feel the question. Yeah, sure. Fire away. And, uh, and how, what, what's our time check? We've got half an hour. Okay, yeah. great. So I saw you first, and then I'll try and sweep this way. Yeah. Um, thanks for the talk. It was really interesting. Um, I understand that a good deal of the soy crops grown in these areas are fed to or used as livestock feed. Um, you mentioned soy and beef as being big drivers of deforestation and keeping in mind the growing appetite for meat around the world. I was wondering why diet is so readily <coughs> as a solution to climate change and deforestation. Um, yeah, so you're absolutely right. Uh, the soy 
that's grown in Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America is mostly for, uh, well, it's, it, it's mostly not for eating. It's, it's mostly going to cows and going to cars. So it's also, it's also uh, you know, biodiesel, uh, which, which, which is also not, it's not, you know, filling stomachs. Um, diet, I mean, uh, yes, if, if, people, if people ate less meat, it would uh, have potentially a big effect, it would reduce demand for some of these commodities, and that would have a beneficial effect on deforestation. Um, so we, we mentioned that in the book, but I guess it's, it's, not, it's not really one of the biggest, it, it's, it's not as direct, I would say, as a method, as, if, as just putting uh, forward um, you know, payments, money, turning the, the trees into something that's more valuable uh, alive than dead. But yeah, so it's Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Jonah. You mentioned offsets, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if your book talks much about the challenges of offsets, yeah. including that they can be susceptible to adverse selection of non-additional areas that would feed into the offset scheme. Yes, uh, so we do. So, so the chapter nine on the international politics is <coughs> on is the, the second half. The first half is on you know how we got to Paris agreement. The, the second half is basically everything you would, you would want to do if you had offsets uh, to make sure that you didn't have a lot of the problems that you could potentially have. So you want to make sure that if you're reducing emissions in one place that you know, you're not just shifting uh, agricultural activity to a nearby place. They you know, call that leakage. Or you mentioned additionality, meaning that you're, you're paying for a reduction that was going to happen anyway. You want to avoid that. So there have been um, now 10 years of negotiations in the UN on how you would deal with some of these problems. There's also been quite a bit of experience when I, in, in this chart, a lot of these, uh, you know, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility has a fund Norway's been paying. They have experience on sort of the technical details, things you'd want to get right if you're using emission reductions from forests to replace emission reductions from fossil fuels. So we do get into those, but uh, because it's more technical details, I usually you know, don't, 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 don't get that deep in the presentations. But yes, or oh, sorry, you, were, you had a question? Yeah. Could I get you to go back to the slide that had uh, the listing of factors that were correlated positively or negatively, that's the one, yeah. Um, <clears throat> when you were zapping down that list, you, uh, didn't talk about one that's very interesting, and that is greater poverty. You know, yeah. Superficially, yeah. it looks like if we go for less deforestation, then we might end up with greater poverty, and that would be a problem. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So this was a surprising one. Um, well, first of all, what the relationship says here is that places that are poorer have uh, less deforestation than places that are richer. Um, and... It, it, it comes as a, as a surprise to almost every audience because there's a quite ingrained um, way of thinking that's, that's, that's promoted that says, well, if we just make people richer, then they won't want to deforest anymore. They won't be deforesting to, to feed their kids. Uh, so that's, that's the solution. Let's, let's focus on that and the environment will take care of itself. 
Um, and what this, we, but that's not what we see happening here. Uh, and the way we explain it is that actually, if, if you go from being poorer in one area to being richer, uh, you have more money. If you want to do more deforestation, you can. You can hire more people. You can buy bigger machines. Um, you know, maybe now you're no longer deforesting uh, to put uh, you know, food in your family's belly, but now you're deforesting to send your kids to college, or now you're deforesting to buy a second house. Uh, you know, there's no limit to the human capacity for wanting more stuff, unfortunately. So, so that's uh, what, how we explain what's happening here. Um, Isn't there a problem, I, I'm not an expert in this field by any means, but uh, in the case of um, creating uh, palm oil plantations in Indonesia, uh, I, my understanding is that those plantations generate a lot of employment opportunities for people that are very unskilled and, and very poor. Yeah. And those people are going to be better off if there's no palm plantation than if there's just a forest. So, so uh, if, if we're sort of advocating not creating oil palm plantations, are we sort of forgetting about those poor people? Um, right. So yeah. So a few, a few, a few different points on this. So one, one is just about the the reverse causality here. So just this relationship that where there's more uh, poor people, there's also less deforestation. That on its own, you, you don't know if, you know, as we just claimed, you get richer and you deforest more, or if it's uh, the deforestation happens and now you're richer. It's, it's probably both. But uh, we also have evidence that, you know, at, at least it's more income leads to more deforestation because there's some cases where, uh, for reasons entirely unrelated to deforestation, there's money that comes into the community. You know, there's a, there's a targeted anti-poverty program in Mexico, for example, which even uses a random rollout. And the places where they randomly injected uh, income to the community, the, the deforestation goes up, to, you know, controlling for other things. So we, we do think it's that. But what, what it, it is also almost certainly the reverse causality. It's you... Uh, Clear land for palm oil, yes, and you, you definitely get income. You definitely uh, employ people. Um, so that, that leads to what do you uh, do about it. Um, and I would, uh, so, so you see the case that we make is that you should be able to sell uh, for the service from standing forests the same way you can sell uh, production from palm oil. Probably not the only solution, but part of the policy solution. And in Brazil, where I mentioned they, they had, um, you know, they had this drop. It was almost entirely with restrictive uh, measures. Almost none of this came from payments going in, uh, make, making farmers better off and somehow compensating them for not being able to clear onto new lands anymore. Um, and so I, I would, uh, you know, I, I suspect, I guess, now, now this deforestation is going back up. The, the coalition in favor of low deforestation is not as broad or as durable as it would have been if payments coming in had been part of the package. So this is the decrease is the Lula administration, very favorable uh, to reducing deforestation. Uh, Dilma sort of 
holding pattern, and then now Tamer, it's going back up. It's, uh, you know, it's a different coalition, and the, the farmers are in power now. If they had been seeing more income from keeping forests standing uh, in the form of payments, it might, you know, they, they'd have more, they'd, more likely to be part of a coalition for keeping that type of program going. Uh, so I, sweep, I guess continuing to sweep around, and then we'll do another sweep. So you, you are next. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for your speech. Um, I was wondering if you could click back to the slide where you had countries along the bottom and then the finance. Yes, that one. Um, so to me, that looks like what it's saying is the out of the, the amount of climate finance available to reduce emissions, a small proportion is going towards forests, even though you've highlighted that it's one of the most cost-efficient ways. Correct, um, yeah. Could you just expand on the reasons for that? Yeah, yeah. So one of them is so... First, I guess some nuance I forgot to mention. Japan is listed as really big. This, this mixes uh, grants and loans. So Japan, a lot of this is, is loans um, rather, rather than grants. And that's, that's part of the reason uh, why forests are less funded compared to uh, energy. I mean, you can give a loan for uh, a wind farm Knowing that it's there, there's going to be a rate of return to the to the wind farm, um, you know may, maybe there has to be some, uh, you know concessions in the loan because it's below you know maybe maybe the returns are lower than you'd get from something else. But with forests, th there's not a lot of uh, you know return already to to keeping primary forest as primary forest um, in the in the same way. Uh, that, that has a few effects. You know, one, is, one is that you can't give a loan. It kind of has to be a grant. Or if it's a carbon market, you're, you're paying and exchanging for an emission reduction elsewhere. Um, but that also means, as a political economy thing, there's not very concentrated vested interests who can argue in favor of forest conservation. Um, so in my country, in the US, domestically on climate, there have been billions of dollars that have gone toward uh, carbon and capture and storage at coal plants, not because it's the cheapest or has the best can chance of success, but because they're very well organized and connected uh, power plants with you know, deep uh, connections in Washington. Whereas forest conservation you know, overseas, it's kind of you know, the, the green NGOs uh, who, who've been making the case. Uh, so th there is, uh, that's another part of the reason why I'd say the money goes uh, where it does. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, in addition to carbon emissions, of course, tropical forests are fundamental in the hydrology of the planet. And basically, <coughs> latent heat fluxes and the nucleation of cloud albedos, you know, they, they basically provide about 200 watts per square meter of cooling. We have to cool this planet three watts per square meter to get back to a stable climate. It's an imperative. So has your book really looked at this, the effect of forest on the hydrological and therefore the cooling potential that that represents? And has it analyzed that scientific and economic literature on that side? Uh, yes. So we, so we draw uh, on the Lawrence and Vandekar paper that came out in, I think, 2013 or so, a little bit before our book, which says that the, those combined effects, the, the, the cooling uh, the, the, from changing local weather patterns, uh, it, the, the difference between having tropical forests or if, if you hypothetically cleared all tropical forests, 
that on its own could be almost, uh, almost a degree, something like 0.85 of a degree of Celsius from that. That's on top of the effect that we spend most of the book talking about, which is uh, from the carbon emissions from clearing and burning, uh, causing global warming. So there's a few others that I also didn't mention in the talk that we didn't, that, but we do mention in the book. Uh, one of them is the albedo effect uh, that you mentioned. So tropical forests generally uh, have, you know, create clouds. Clouds are white; they reflect sun back to space. Uh, and if you clear the forest, you lose the clouds, so it's more heat that you trap there. Uh, this is different from temperate or boreal forests that don't have as much cloud. If you clear some, those, sometimes the land gets uh, lighter rather than darker. Um, and, and so the albedo effect you know, cuts against the carbon effect. So that's sort of another reason in favor of focusing on tropical. Okay, so given the significance of this you know, one degree cooling potential, when you say we don't really have that carbon emissions, where is that reflected in your recommendations for strategic action? Oh, you know, it, it aligns with it. If, if you're protecting tropical forests, then you're getting both of them. So, you know, so if, if uh, I guess you could say a, a, anything we talk about tropical forests being cost effective, it would make it even more cost effective if you were to include uh, local weather effects. And so also people like local weather effects. So there was... Um, a study by Eric Maillard in Indonesia where he surveyed people living in villages and asked them, why do you like forests or why, why do you prefer other things? And his study, the answer, the, the thing, you know, those respondents liked most about forests was the shade. It was cool. It was something like, you know, I think almost 10 degrees C cooler. You know, you walk from the bright sunlight into the forest and you feel much cooler. Um, so that's one, one of the many reasons that we list that forests are, are important. So, yes? Um, thanks for the interesting presentation, Dina. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the political context. I mean, you're based in DC, right? So there's a big orange question mark yeah, about yeah. climate finance going forward. Um, also, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about red costs. Um, I think I read an article last week or something that's like, is the red dead? It's such a convenient mm -hmm. rhyme. <laughs> yeah. um, and also, uh, even in like the international discussions in this space, I think about five or six years ago, there started to be this transition to talking about landscape approaches and forests seem to drop off the hot topic slightly. So I'd just be interested in your take on um, how all of that's going in a political sense. Right. So, um, so I'm living in China right now. Uh, so for the, the my my wife and I moved to China in uh, September. 2016, uh, and we, we we did so thinking that when we, uh, we 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 you know moved back to the United States, one person would be president, and and uh, we got a rude awakening. And now you know the other person's president. President, uh, that was that was a you know a shock for us as it was for many people. And I'm still kind of hoping maybe you know that person won't be president in this six six months. To anyway. <laughs> Uh, we, we have who we have. It's very bad for, uh, for climate finance. It's very bad for a lot of things, I think, that, uh, you, but, but, but it's, it's bad for climate finance, certainly. Uh, both the international climate finance and the domestic policies. So basically, uh, if President Obama did it and it was something good for climate, this president and, and his party 
uh, want want to oppose it and, and try to repeal it, and they've had uh, more more successes than than failures so far. Um, you know, it, it puts I guess it, it it puts our work in a different in a different light. I mean, the, this is an administration that kind of it, a lot of people still trying to figure out what they listen to. You know, they they don't they don't listen to economics. It's, it seems like. Um, so even making an economics argument doesn't get the traction it might with a different president. But you know, it's our it's our job to try, I suppose. I mean, the good thing about the U.S. is that actually, in a federal system, there's a lot of things that affect climate that are that are policies at the state level. A lot of the uh, you know utility regulations that affect wind and solar are state level decisions. Um, you know, cities decide for themselves how they build and they build in an energy efficient or less energy efficient way. Um, and the U.S. is not the big player in the world uh, that it once was, uh, you know, and the, the, maybe some people still wish it were. Uh, and it means, you know, what happens in China is more important, relatively speaking. And in and, and China, you know, is very aggressively moving forward uh, on climate because of their local air pollution, domestic air pollution. Um, yeah, red plus skepticism. I mean, so there was very high hopes in, in 2008, 2009, that there'd be tens of billions of dollars a year going into tropical forest conservation uh, because there were high hopes there'd be a global uh, climate agreement at that time that would include a, you know, a global or at least a very internationally linked carbon market. Um, after that uh, failed, you know, after that, that didn't happen, um, you know, expectations had to really recalibrate to much lower. Uh, so a, a lot of, you know, instead of having tens of billions a year, there's maybe hundreds of millions a year going. So it's not, you know, to, dead is is uh, in, incorrect. So red, red you, no, 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 you're 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 correct that this is that that that's kicked around. That, that's out there, and, and you know those articles are definitely out there. Uh, but but it, it exists. It's sort of keeping the torches burning with the hope that it would get bigger eventually. It is, you know, a billion dollars a year is is not nothing. And there are still new initiatives like Green Climate Fund. Another one I didn't mention: the International Civil Aviation Organization, the world's airlines, is uh, you know has agreed amongst themselves to become carbon neutral growth after 2020. They want to buy a bunch of offsets to make that happen. They're considering forests. So. Even there's some new potential sources of finance. Um, yeah, so like landscape approaches. I mean, if you don't have international finance for forest conservation and you still believe that forest conservation is a good thing, then you have to make the case for it in other ways. Uh, and so we make the case for it, you know, based on the, the services, you know, the, the cleaner water, the more hydroelectricity and so forth. Um, you know, you, you could make an ideological case, you could make a case based on the fact that two-thirds of the world's plants and animals live in tropical forests. Uh, you could make a case, I guess, as the, the landscape approach does, that there's sort of, sort of if you could do, um, you know, integrated holistic management within a small area of land that would get, that would be better than if you didn't. Um, but any of those cases would be stronger if additionally there was international finance for the, the services forests provide. Yes? Just uh, two points. The 
first one is uh, what do you think about the Paris Agreement? Do you think it's an effective means to uh, reduce deforestation, considering the Kyoto Protocol is uh, was working better than nothing, but it's not effectively reducing deforestation? <coughs> the second one is by any chance, I know you, you're not trying to cover everything, but is there any uh, role of civil societal organization in your book? Uh, and how do you consider that community's role or NGOs or, or other actors rather than the bureaucrats or international big actors? What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, Paris is good. Um, it's world's better than if everyone had gone to Paris and not come away with an agreement. Uh, like many international agreements, it's sort of a, a you know a glass half empty, half full, and it's it's a mark of who's a an optimist and who's a pessimist. I mean, uh, the base the, the premise is instead of trying to get some countries uh, to make you know legally binding commitments, it asks all countries to make voluntary uh, commitments. And you know, the reason I say I guess is that it's um, glass half empty or full is that there's analyses of how much those voluntary commitments, you know, if you if you stack them all up, how cool does that make the planet? And you know, it's almost halfway between where we're headed and you know two degrees or 1.5 degrees, you know, more safe margin. So it, it's it's halfway there. So it's way better than if nothing happened. It's not as good as if you could get every country to commit more. The, the hope expressed around Paris was that, you know, there's, uh, every, there's review. So any country at any time can say, we're going to do more, uh, we're going to contribute more. And the hope is over time, countries would gain experience, costs would come down, you'd find it easier to say, we're going to do more on climate change. Um, on civil society organizations, I mean, we, we, we look at this both in, in two contexts, I guess. One is in the rich countries, because that's, uh, that's our focus. And then we look at who the coalitions were that were arguing for or against red payments, for example. And so, you know, a lot of the larger NGOs arguing for uh, red plus and uh, some smaller but very influential uh, NGOs arguing against, and we talked about their, the arguments on, that they were making on both sides. Uh, within developing countries, we talk about the political coalitions in favor of uh, forest conservation. And so some of the uh, developing country civil society organizations are making the case based on uh, indigenous people's rights and claims, based in some cases on uh, the services so that are, that are degraded if there's fires, if there's erosion, uh, People feel these, um, and often, you know, a good government agenda. So in many in many countries, uh, you know, logging and conventional forestry is is perceived as one of the most corrupt sectors. You know, rent seeking, selling bribes, those things. And so, people many times groups that are um, concerned about sort of a cleaner, uh, more transparent, more responsive government. Uh, have forests on their on their target list, but most of what we talk about really is again what Washington should be doing, what Canberra should be doing, less less about 
what's going on in uh, you know forest countries on that. Yes, in the back. Yeah, thank you. Um, look, uh, if we leave the forest in place, so you've got about 100 to 120 tons of carbon per hectare for tropical forest. I mean, if, for example, there's a price on carbon at, say, $8 a ton, you know, that hectare might be worth $500, $600. Um, my question, I suppose, is, um, is there any way we can pay a developing country to leave the forest alone? because it has value, as it is as a standing forest? Or do we need to have a complete, um, the whole world to agree to a price on carbon? Um, so you don't need the whole world. So, so there's already, I mean, the government of Norway and to a lesser extent, a few other countries have already been paying, uh, Brazil, Guyana, uh, you know, a few other countries. So you, you know you don't need the whole world. You just need a, you know, a coalition of, of the willing um, and I guess in, in regards to your math, it's generally not even paying for every single, uh, you know, hectare of forest. It's paying for reductions in the rate of deforestation. So because deforestation is, you know, on average, maybe half a percent a year, a quarter percent a year, if you bring it down from half a percent a year to, you know, a tenth of a percent of a year, you're only, you know, the way the payment agreement works, you're only paying for that differential. It's much, much less than having to pay for all the forest every year. Um, but just, just to sort of put this finance from the rich countries into context, this is a billion dollars a year. Uh, as of last year, the, the government of India is now spending... Uh, more than $6 billion a year uh, on protecting and restoring <coughs> forests. They expect it's going to be $12 billion by 2020, all domestically. And the way that happens is that forests are now included in the tax devolution formula from the center governments to the state governments. So there's 30, uh, roughly 28, 29 states in India um, a lot of their tax revenue is collected centrally and then distributed, and it's based on a formula. The formula has population, it has poverty, it has area. Uh, as of 2014, it also has forest cover. 7.5% um, of that tax revenue transferred from the, the center to the states is based on the forest area of the states. So if you're a state and you increase your forest area through reforestation, you get paid more. If you clear your forest, you get paid less. That's a big, big incentive um, just through domestic mobilization. And does that mean you know rich countries don't have to put money forward anymore? No, because there's still a global service from the, the climate, but uh, it does sort of raise the bar. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, one of the concerns about uh, bilateral rent schemes is the expectation that's built up that a payment is going to be made. There were reports that uh, Guyana had met very few of the targets, but still got a lot of money from Norway. It was very generous of Norway, but not very uh, rewarding for the, for the environment. Uh, that's a risk, I think, with bilateral schemes. That doesn't apply if you have a market-based scheme where the rigor is sort of self-reinforcing. Is, is that your experience, or is it a one-off, or is it wrong? Yeah, um, well, so, so the expectations being high, I mean, uh, 
So that's absolutely happened. That's a, the, you know, permeates this funding landscape is that 10 years ago, people thought, uh, you know, with, with a pretty high degree of likelihood, in fact, they weren't wrong to think that there could be tens of billions of dollars coming. And so, uh, you know, the, the US passed a bill through one house of Congress that on its own would have been 10 to $15 billion a year uh, for tropical forest conservation by purchasing offsets. And it, you know, and it, and it fought and died in the other House of Congress, but it was, you know, very much on the table. Um, and so, there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, th those dashed expectations, uh, you know, cause problems. So, on the case of Guyana, um, I the, the way so so Guyana has some of the world's lowest rates of deforestation. Uh, they're practically microscopic compared to most of their neighbors. And the payment from Norway was to keep those rates at very, very low levels. Um, and basically, that, that's happened. So if you were judging this just on the basis of uh, the, the carbon portion of the agreement, uh, Guyana kept its end of the bargain. It kept its rates very, very low. Uh, they went up, but it went from a, you know, very small to very small compared to Brazil. Uh, and so based on that, Norway has put about 190 million out of a total promised or, or pledged up to 250 million into a fund. Uh, but it's basically an escrow. Now, Guyana and Norway have had a very, very difficult time moving uh, the fund from escrow to uh, you know, basically being put to use in Guyana. Um, and that's because the don't you know with public money they haven't been able to just pay for uh, reductions in, or maintenance of low deforestation they've said well this is public money it has to be accountable uh, it really would not look good if, if we give you the you know the money and, and then we you know it, it walks off and we don't know where it went uh, or it's public money we have to account for it to the OECD we need to be able to say that somewhere down the line it was spent on uh, you know, development projects and not on, on just some other thing from the general fund. Um, and so those other sort of co-conditions uh, have been very problematic in getting the money to move. And you know, often there's good use, well, there are good reasons to have those with public funds. And I think as you allude to, with the market, you'd have a different set of things you'd wanna deal with. You, you probably, you know, in, in other markets, you know, when, when I buy, uh, you know, if, if I'm filling up a gas, I don't drive a car, but if I was filling up a gas tank and I buy oil, I'm not asking any questions about what was done to produce the oil, what, you know, the Saudis spend it on. If I did ask those questions, you know, um, the market would look differently than it does. Um, but with, with offset financing, with market financing, it's more the the questions where you were asking at the beginning about the non-additionality and so forth. So, so I think we are yeah. pretty much gone through. Yeah. So I'm sure there are more questions. Please come and ask Joan afterwards. But for now, thanks. It was a great presentation. And also take all those questions. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au 
To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.